Welcome to Question Period, I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, reopenings and shortages. We can confirm up to 40 million doses by the end of June. As provinces are reopening, is Canada suddenly expecting up to 8 million fewer vaccines by the end of next month? And who knew what when about allegations against the former head of Canada's vaccine rollout? We'll ask the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc. Then, constitutional trap? Yes, I'm happy because he confirmed that uh, uh, we were right when we said that we can unilaterally uh, uh, amend the uh, Constitution. Can Quebec unilaterally change the Constitution and declare Quebec a nation? Was the Prime Minister too quick to agree? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh weighs in on that and judicial giant. My life as a lawyer and a judge has been incredibly intellectually fulfilling. She created the term and the concept of employment equity in Canada. She's one of the most highly regarded judges around the world, but her time on the Supreme Court has come to an end. What are the toughest legal challenges Canada now faces today? Are the courts now too powerful in the age of the Charter? We have an exclusive interview, the first TV interview she's done in decades with Supreme Court Justice Rosalie Abella. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. For two months, Major General Denny Fultant led Canada's weekly vaccine briefings, all the while a sexual misconduct complaint was making its way through national defense, a complaint the Prime Minister said he knew about for weeks before Fultant stepped aside on Friday. In regards uh, to this situation, uh, it is being uh, led and followed up appropriately by uh, appropriate authorities and military leadership. In situations like this, um, those authorities can make a determination uh, to inform me and my office, which they did in this case a number of weeks ago. During that time, the Prime Minister says he never asked for details into the nature of the investigation because that would amount to political interference. I have not been given uh, a tremendous amount of details into this case because that would not be appropriate. Sources tell CTV News the military investigation stems from a formal complaint filed with military police back in March, alleging, quote, a historical sexual assault. The incident, sources say, allegedly dates back 32 years to early 1989 at the Royal Military College in Saint-Jean in Quebec, when Fortin was a student there. Fortin's lawyer says his client denies the allegation, and the investigation has now been handed over to the Quebec Public Prosecution Service, which will decide whether the accusation meets the threshold to lay criminal charges or not. But should Mr. Fortin have stepped aside earlier while the investigation was taking place? To talk about that, we're joined now by the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc. Minister, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Let's just start with Major General Good morning, Fortin. Everyone. Um, the head of the, the vaccine rollout. So at that point, he not only was part of the military, he was double-hatted, essentially. He also represented the Public Health Agency of Canada, which reports to the health minister. Why was he allowed to keep working for months after senior officials knew there was a credible allegation against him? Should he have essentially stepped aside pending an investigation? So, Evan, I, I like many people, learned about uh, these allegations when they surfaced publicly. Uh, I think the Prime Minister and the Minister of Defence have said and consistently said, and, and they're right, that determinations around these issues aren't properly made by politicians. We have learned, I have learned uh, subsequently, that the military police or military investigation services were looking into this. 
um, and the chief of defense staff uh, informed the minister of defense uh, a week ago uh, that uh, Major General Fortin was stepping aside while this process was concluding. In light of the culture that you've spoken about in the military, in light of the fact that the prime minister was made aware of this weeks ago, why would it be interfering if the prime minister said, look, I don't need to even know the details of this. This is a credible allegation. Well, there's an independent investigation. Properly step aside. If he's cleared, he can return. But if it's a credible allegation, why is it interfering if he would step aside? In fact, that's exactly what happened on Friday. Why shouldn't he have done that weeks ago? What would be the difference? Evan, those, those decisions are properly uh, in the hands of military authorities who uh, receive information on these investigations. It's not, it's not politicians that should be opining on what's the appropriate course for an investigation no, no, sorry, around allegations to, as minister, serious as this. I, I, uh, I appreciate take. that, and, but, but if he's representing the Public Health Agency of Canada, that's why I say that I'm just intrigued with the process. This is not strictly a military matter at that point. He's also now representing the Public Health Agency of Canada, which reports to the health minister, who reports to the prime minister. So in that hat, why is it interfering? Because he's now part of the Public Health Agency of Canada. Why is that an interference simply to say, step aside until we investigate these? I'm just intrigued. What is the process always, we can do nothing, even if these people report to us? Well, Evan, I think we've taken concrete steps uh, to improve the process uh, to deal with these uh, allegations and these complaints and to, uh, and to hear survivors and to uh, encourage them to come forward with these stories and ensure that they're, they're protected as is appropriate. So we have taken, uh, whether it's uh, Madame Arbour, former Supreme Court Justice Arbour's uh, work or appointing General Carignan, we have taken and will continue to take steps to improve these processes uh, and ensure that survivors or people that come forward with these allegations are treated fairly appropriately uh, and uh, and are encouraged to, to come forward. I do want to move on to the vaccines because the person who took over from General Fulton, Brigadier General Krista Brody, uh, told Canadians last week that Canada will only get 40 million vaccines by the end of June. The Prime Minister and the Health Minister has repeatedly said that would be 48 million. Can you clarify why there's suddenly uh, a shortage here? So uh, General Brody and her uh, colleagues at the Government Operations Centre that deal on a daily, if not an hourly basis in many respects with provincial and territorial counterparts, uh, give information on vaccines for which we have a precise delivery date. One of the challenges with Moderna, and this has been a challenge for some weeks around their supply chain, uh, around quality assurance processes that took a bit more time, uh, the precise delivery date of the millions of Moderna doses that will come to Canada over the next four or five weeks has yet to be determined. My colleague, Anita Anand, the Minister of Procurement, is having again another high-level conversation with the company on Tuesday this coming week uh, to again press them for more visibility and better information on the delivery date. So when General Brody talks about 40 million, that doesn't include the delivery of millions of right. doses of Moderna that we expect to come in the month of June. But, but, but unfortunately, we're working with the company to get the exact delivery dates, which we don't have yet.
Uh, last issue, the Prime Minister this past week said that Quebec, he believes, has the unilateral right to change the Constitution to say Quebec is a nation, that uh, French is the only official language. That's what this, uh, the Quebec government under Mr. Legault wants to do. It's called Bill 96. Why does the federal government wade in that this is okay, or do you believe that this is a violation of the Amendment Act? Like, what's the rationale by giving this the green light? So, Evan, we, we base those comments on the initial legal advice we've received from the Department of Justice. Any proposed amendments like that would apply, obviously, only to the province of Quebec. Uh, we want to ensure that uh, Section 133, which includes the responsibility to protect the English language minority in Quebec, that those rights are also protected, that none of this would derogate from that particular clause. So we're following the debate in the National Assembly. It's a proposed uh, piece of provincial legislation. We'll continue to work with the Quebec government and our own Department of Justice and other constitutional experts to understand, as their bill progresses through their legislative steps, what it would mean for Canada. All right, uh, Dominic. Well, I got to leave it there. I really appreciate it. Have a great weekend, Evan. Thank you. All right. Coming up, is this the beginning of a constitutional crisis? We're going to continue that discussion. As you just heard, the federal government says that Quebec can unilaterally amend the Constitution to recognize Quebec as a nation and make French its official language. What about other federal leaders? Is this about law or trying to win votes in Quebec? We'll ask the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. He joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has now responded to the controversial new bill from the Quebec government that declares Quebec will unilaterally change the Constitution and declare Quebec a nation within Canada that the only official language is French. Here's what the Prime Minister said about it on Tuesday. Our uh, initial analysis uh, in terms of the uh, Justice Department uh, has highlighted that it is uh, perfectly uh, legitimate for a province to modify the section of the Constitution that applies specifically to them. So has a new constitutional crisis just started? Will this end up opening old separatist debates in Quebec and new ones in the West? And on the even of an election, how are federal leaders going to respond? We did ask Canada's Minister of Official Languages to appear and to discuss the federal government's position, but Minister Melanie Jolie declined. But we are joined to talk about this and other things by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Right off the top, do you think Quebec has the unilateral right to change the Constitution and say Quebec is a nation and that French is the only official language? On these two specific grounds, we support it. It's pretty obvious that uh, French uh, French is the, the language of Quebec, and, and Quebec is a nation. It's been something that's been supported in Parliament. Previous governments have, have declared Quebec a nation. So these are two important declarations that are not in any way controversial. It's, it's both, both of them are founded. And in terms of language rights for minority language groups, those will be con continue to be protected on the Charter because they are not uh, subject to the notwithstanding clause. So what's going to happen in terms of the day-to-day -day life of language minorities in Quebec, nothing is going to change. But it's an important declaration to acknowledge something that we already accept and know. 
remember, in Parliament, uh, when the Stephen Harper government passed that, it was a nation within Canada. This is just a nation. The fundamental basis of language rights in Canada is actually Section 133 of the BNA Act. Uh, that guarantees language rights in both French and English in any legislative body and courts. That was upheld in the 1979 Blakey case. They want to actually change that fundamental constitution going back there. Don't you think that vi it could violate potentially 133 in that section? I think what's going to happen in terms of the day-to-day -day life of, of, uh, of a Quebecer, particularly Anglophones in Quebec, is that they're going to continue to have the same language right protections that they've had before. And, and what this is, is an important declaration of something that we all accept in terms of Quebec's unique, unique situation as a, as a French-speaking province and as a place that is a nation within Quebec, uh, within Canada. It's something that, that's really well established and, and we support. But if Quebec, I mean, the question is, what does this open the door to? If Quebec can now unilaterally declare French is the only official language, if it is a nation, not a nation within Canada, just a nation, what's stopping a Western province, for example, or any other province, from saying English is the only official language of our province, and we are a nation within Canada? Does this bill encourage a move towards separatism? Uh, I don't think so. Really, this is something that's well established. These aren't principles that are unique or, or um, unheard of when it comes to Quebec. Quebec is in a really special position. It's the only French-speaking province in all of North America in that same way. It's, it's unique in where it, where it is, and, and that makes it something uh, that, that is declaring that uniqueness is not something that's um, unheard of or, or would in any way um, change the kind of way things happen. If Alberta said, and there's a, there's a separatist party out there that's talking about this, if they said Alberta is a nation within Canada and English is going to be the only official language, would you support that as well? Well, we know that uh, Canada is a bilingual nation and it's important to have bilingual services across Canada. I think that's something that makes us a special place. Uh, Quebec has unique challenges being the only province that is French-speaking in a, in a sea of, of English. It's, it's different and it's, it's a unique challenge. So I think there would be differences there. Well, that means what's so, but the law doesn't work like that. You're saying they have a unilateral right to use a certain section of the Constitution to say it, but Alberta wouldn't. New Brunswick's like, wait, we're, we're a bilingual province. We're concerned about language guarantees. I, this is the problem here. What's good for one province legally in the Constitution has to be good for the other. That's, I guess, the slippery slope I'm asking you about. And you're saying, okay for Quebec, not okay for Alberta. I would just say with respect to language rights, there's a unique challenge that Quebec is faced with. It doesn't apply to other provinces. There isn't a, a menace to English. There isn't a challenge or a threat to English language. So it's not really the same comparison. Uh, Quebec has a unique situation. So they're going to have a different, uh, a different scenario that they're going to have to respond to. It's a different situation for the one province in all of North America that is, that is French-speaking the way that Quebec is. That is different. That is unique. And, and it's something that we all understand. You have a star candidate running in British Columbia, Avi Lewis. He was the co-founder of something called the Leap Manifesto in 2015. Of course, you know this was incredibly divisive in your party and provincially has been very divisive in, for, for example, the NDP in Alberta. The Leap calls for things like no building any new projects that have to do with fossil fuels, pipelines, fracking, more tanker traffic, can, no Canadian-owned mines anywhere in the world. Are you now okay with the Leap Manifesto uh, idea? Is that now sort of acceptable in the, as mainstream in the in the NDP? Not at all. We've, we've not accepted that at all. And what we're saying really clearly 
there's only one path to achieving what we want, as everyone wants to protect our planet, to protect against climate crisis, is to make sure that no workers left behind. We cannot have any sort of meaningful action on fighting the climate crisis that ignores the reality of all the resource sector workers and the energy sector workers. But the we leap need to make is sure okay that they that. have a bright future. Well, the LEAP is okay. They talked about transitioning to workers. They, they were very keen on that. Well, the, the transition language doesn't really work with workers, right? They, they hear that and they say that we're not going to have a job tomorrow. And it's not really recognizing the reality. For me, the path that I want to chart as leader of the New Democratic Party, my path is we cannot achieve any meaningful action on fighting the climate crisis unless workers are at the heart of it. As leader of a workers' party, I'm not going to leave behind workers from any sector, but particularly those that have been hardest hit. And right now, Alberta and a lot of the energy and resource sectors are the hardest hit. All right, I got to leave it there. Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much. Okay, coming up, the groundbreaker leaves the Supreme Court. But what are the great legal challenges ahead for this country? After decades on the Supreme Court, Justice Rosalia Bella retired on Friday. Today, we have an exclusive television interview with her, her first. Stay right here with Question Period. People like me, female, Jewish, immigrant, refugee, weren't exactly being appointed to the bench in droves. So really all I was aspiring to do when I graduated from law school with five other women was to be a really good lawyer. In her final day on the bench, after 17 years, she had the Supreme Court in tears, and she said some herself. It was, as ever, that distinct mix of a brilliant legal mind which has transformed the country, and her unbounded heart, her idealism, and her humanity, qualities that have marked the extraordinary life of Justice Rosalie Silberman Abella or simply rosy to her friends. Jewish, female, immigrant, refugee, that's how she describes herself. The daughter of Holocaust survivors. Her parents' first son and Justice Abella's brother was killed by the Nazis. She was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany. Her family came to Canada. Her father, a trained lawyer, not allowed to practice here. And she vowed she would. By the age of 29, she was a judge and pregnant. She'd already, by 1984, made a mark that resonates today. She was appointed as the commissioner of the Royal Commission of Equality in Employment. She literally invented the term employment equity and changed the country's understanding of equality for women, people of, with disabilities, indigenous peoples, visible minorities for generations. And now, after 17 years on the Supreme Court bench, some still regard that work as her most lasting. But she's recognized in other ways. She, of course, famously moderated that federal leaders debate. Live from Ottawa, Encounter 88. Good evening. And her work is recognized around the world. In the U.S., she's often compared to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and RBG called Justice Abella, quote, among her dearest sisters-in-law as she leaves the Supreme Court. What concerns her about the future? What role should the courts play in society? Are they too active, as some say? Let's find out. It is a privilege and a pleasure to welcome Justice Abella to her first interview, I think, in decades. Um, thank you so much. Welcome to the program. Thank you. you. You picked a very emotional day for me to be making my television debut again, and I can't think of a better place to, to just kind of share what, a, what an incredible voyage it's been. So thank you for asking me. Jaspella, uh, in your last speech on the bench, you said, people like me 
don't become judges, female Jewish immigrant refugees. You say immigrants live for opportunities, not entitlement. So on your last day on the, on, on the court, who did you think of most as you sat there? Oh, I thought of my family. I thought of the people I went on this journey with. I thought of my parents who encouraged me to be whatever I wanted to be. I thought of my husband who, um, who was married to the only woman he knew uh, among all of our friends who was both a mother and in the paid labor force at the same time. Uh, who who loved me. So that was, it, it was a day to think about origins mm -hmm. because when you come to endings, uh, you start to give yourself permission to think about the arc and where it began. One of the things that has marked your career in the law is your unapologetic mixing of your biography and your life and how it's informed your work as a judge, your your how you see the law. How has your biography informed your, your legal career? I think we're all shaped by what we've come from. Some people embrace what they've come from. Some people spend a fair bit of energy trying to distance themselves. I never, I never felt anything but a seamless relationship with who I was, uh, it, my religion, my gender, uh, my origins, uh, the Holocaust that my parents had survived. So I'm unabashedly committed to the values that increase justice for people. I'm not at all embarrassed about the fact that I am shaped by who I am. Uh, but I have learned as a judge that you take who you are, you take your own experiences, but when you are in a courtroom, you have to understand that what you are listening to may have nothing to do with any of that. Learning to be a judge means learning to put your own views aside and actually listening. You know, keeping your mind open, listening to the arguments. Judging isn't about me. It's, it's not a top-down exercise. It's looking at the world through the eyes of the people who are before us, whom we're judging, to right. see what that world looks like and then apply to a, the law to it in as fair a way as you can. I mentioned in the your work in 1984 on employment equity and, and how you pioneered that. You've told me that you think that might be your greatest accomplishment. T tell me why the impact of that, because here we are all these decades later in the Me Too moment, in the Black Lives Matter moment, many issues of equity, many issues of inclusion, many issues of, of inequity and privilege that we talk about as if uh, they're just emerging, but you were dealing with that in, in your report. Tell me why that work is so important to you and why it still resonates today, or did it, is the work just so important? To, is it still ongoing? I mean, the whole, the whole notion of inclusion, of keeping our, our focus on who is excluded and making sure that we include more is really what has made Canada's multiculturalism such a, such a worldwide success. Because um, in that report, and the reason I've, I feel it's, it's, it's kind of stayed, 
it was a chance to think about what equality means for Canada. There had not at the time been any decisions on the Supreme Court yet about what section 15, the equality section meant. So I traveled across the country uh, to uh, 17 cities in six right. weeks. I was able to build on a set of diverse experiences that made where I've ended up a much more enriching mm -hmm. uh, responsibility for me. So it, it wasn't just law that I'd learned along the way. I'd learned about policy. I learned about uh, about people. I learned about life. And I always stayed open to the possibility that what I knew right. wasn't the end of the story. In 2017, you were given a degree at Brandeis University, and you said, quote, I'm deeply worried about the state of justice in the world. You said, here we are, seven decades after the Second World War and the Holocaust, we're watching never again turn into again and again. You said, we're watching the wonderful democratic consensus fragment, shattered by narcissistic populism, an unhealthy tolerance for intolerance, a cavalier indifference to equality, a deliberate amnesia about the instruments and values of democracy that are no less crucial than elections, and a shocking disrespect for the borders between power and its independent adjudicators like the press and the courts. It was a powerful indictment. What worries you today? Same thing. The same thing. The way, the way that consensus that emerged out of the rubble of World War II, the human and, and physical devastation, and the commitments we made then, not only to democratic institution, institutions, but to the rights that people had so that no longer would any of them have to fear the, the demonization and the genocide and the, and the rights abuses that, that the world tolerated. Uh, that was a commitment that I believed in and my generation grew up thinking that everybody had signed on and that that's the way the world was going to continue to be. And then it didn't, and it wasn't, and it hasn't. And it, it is terrifying to me because I think if, if there is a failure of rights somewhere, uh, there is a failure of rights potentially everywhere. And the greater our tolerance becomes for abuses that we shouldn't for a second tolerate, the less we become the world that I was born into in 1946. And it terrifies me that there's no concern about, um, it, we wag our fingers uh, at the countries who do bad things, we sign letters, we, we, uh, we rebuke them publicly, but nothing ever happens. We've lost the ability as a global community, it seems to figure out how to develop moral standards that are enforceable. And that really worries me because over the years, I'm sure you've seen it too. It's not getting any better. I mean, there may be interstitial and incremental progress, but then um, it goes back and we've we demonized the words of democracy. We've, we've replaced majority uh, minority relationships and the balancing with populism with authoritarianism, with crushing the media, crushing the independence of the judiciary, crushing the independence of the bar and the rights of minorities. And, uh, and we read about it all the time and we worry about it all the time and nothing happens. 
All right, we're going to take a short break, but coming up more with Justice Abella. How does she respond to critics who say judges have become too active? They're infringing on the work of elected officials. We'll get her response to that and lots more. Stay with us. More with Justice Rosie Abella next on Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. 17 years as a Supreme Court judge. Her last day was on Friday. Justice Rosalie Abella leaves the bench, but she leaves a long legacy. But she is far from done. There are still lots of questions about the role of courts in the world. Some people say the courts are too active. What does Justice Abella say? Well, we continue our exclusive conversation with Justice Abella. Welcome back to the program. Um, look, you know there's a lot of questions right now about the role of judges in the world. Some of your critics have said you've been guilty of judicial activism and overreach. In your last statement on the bench, you said, quote, after the charter, judges could no longer be defenders of the status quo. Justice was an application of law to life not an application of laws to facts. What do you mean by that, and what do you tell people who say this is judicial activism? There was no such concept as judicial activism when the charter first came in. It was amazing to see. Judges used to interpret statutes. Constitutional law was about whether something was federal or provincial jurisdiction, egg marketing boards, not everyone's favorite subject in law school. Then we got the charter and the country reacted so positively to Bertha Wilson and Brian Dixon muscularly interpreting this brand new assignment by the legislature to the judges to protect rights, which were now constitutional. That was all through the 80s as we struck down, as the court struck down abortion laws, as the court weighed in on criminal law rights, human rights. And then the 90s came and the culture changed and we started to get the supply side rhetoric from the United States, which said, presumptively, do not take as credible decisions of judges which expand rights. And that turned out to be, if you, uh, if you kind of detangled it, we don't like this result. So we're going to call it something that will make the public consider it to be beyond judicial role, judicial trespass. The truth is, of course, judges are active. When you interpret a law, which is what we do, uh, you are making law. When we interpreted, when, when Lord Sankey in England interpreted the word persons to include women in 1929, he was interpreting a word. He made law. Women became eligible for the Senate. So we got into all of these pillow fights about should they make law? And we ignored the whole history of common law. Judges have always made law. But what these were were not genuine reflections of what judges do and should do. They were genuine reflections of a particular view of law as being something that should be restricted um, and not subject to expansion by judges. So you never heard the word judicial activism applied when a judge restricted rights. I want to talk to you about uh, what is your message to people that say the courts um, are, because of the charter, they're, they're taking too prominent a role, that they're infringing on what elected officials should do, that the courts should just be a little more stick to their lane, their originalism, and that the living tree is growing out of control. So we never, we never uh, didn't stick to our lane. 
This is our lane. We interpret statutes, we interpret laws and policies, and we interpret constitutions. And the constitution since 1982 included the protection of rights, human rights, and civil liberties. Parliament gave it to us. And if you're going to get an, an assignment from Parliament right. and a constitutionalized set of rights, you have to you have to interpret and enforce them. And sometimes that means you're going to be upsetting a lot of people who think you should have decided the other way. And that's why judges have tenure uh, so that they can protect their impartiality, cannot be removed from office until they're 75 for decisions they make that are unpopular because that's not our role. We're not there to be popular. Right. We are there, we are there to do the right thing in, on the public interest behalf not on behalf of one side or the other. And there is no court case, by the way, where the person who doesn't win ever feels the court got it right. Right. So, okay. That's our lane, that's what we do. You know, if you look at cases, and I, I, you don't have to comment specifically on the case, but the Meng Wanzhou case, and, and Canada says, we're following the rule of law, but China says, we're following the rule of law in China too. Everybody's following the so-called rule of law. You've written about this. What bothers you about the expression rule of law? Well, I, I'm not going to comment at all about, about the particular case at all. Uh, but what, what worries me about the rule of law is that it's one of those malleable terms that, uh, that I'm comfortable with when people who have a view of democracy I share use. Uh, but I also find that it is sometimes used by people who are defending um, the law of rules. Um, without the without the texture of the rule of law, so I, for me, have always thought you're really talking about uh, the rule of justice or a just rule of law, because it isn't just law. Law gave us segregation. It gave us apartheid. It gave us uh, genocidal discrimination in the Third Reich. So I don't have the same affection for the term. Mm -hmm because I don't think it really tells the public what it is we're doing. Uh, and I'm, I'm getting the same nervousness about the, the word democracy. Democracy to me had always meant the relationship between the state, the court, uh, rights, the press, minority. It was a balancing. Uh, it has come to mean, what does the majority want? Right. And and that's a, that's a threat to the perception of the courts because courts don't always do what the majority wants. We are the institution with the independence sometimes to defend and protect and promote the rights of minorities uh, yeah. who, who don't reflect what the majority wants. I want to tell you on behalf of many people, and I've gotten to know you over many, many years. It's been one of the great privileges of my life. Your work is extraordinary. I wish you luck in your next chapter at Harvard and the many things that we're gonna watch you doing. Uh, your accomplishments continue to resonate and it is just an honor to have you on this program and to, to listen to your humanity and your optimism and your brilliance. Thank you, Justice Abella. It's a real honor to have you on the program. Thank you, Evan. It's an honor to be here. All right, that is Justice Rosie Bella. Of course, she'll have six more months working on cases already, but she will no longer be sitting on the bench. But if you've not had enough law, don't worry. When we come back, are we about to enter a constitutional crisis? Quebec says they can unilaterally change the Constitution. Do they have the power? Why are the federal leaders so, well, 
unmoved by it. They don't seem to mind. Tom Mulcair will join us on the Scrum. Stay with us. Lots more to come on Question Period. So what used to be Canada's biggest political landmine, Quebec language rights, distinct society, is suddenly looking like a big political shrug? All the federal leaders, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who you just saw on the program, have essentially agreed with the Quebec government's controversial new bill that would allow Quebec to unilaterally change the Constitution, declare Quebec a nation, and its only official language to be French. Remember, this is the debate over things like distinct society that killed the Meech Lake Accord, the Charlottetown Accord, and there have been deeply divisive debates about language rights guarantees for generations in this country. Not anymore. Is the politically sanguine response from the federal leaders all about the law and a new reading of it, or politics, trying to court votes in Quebec. Will this open a new constitutional crisis? Remember, already Western leaders, you've got former premiers like Brad Wall, think this is the start of a Western prairie fire. Check this out. He tweeted out, the PM is fine with Quebec unilaterally amending the Constitution and declaring Quebec a nation and French its official language. Hypothetically speaking, Alberta and Saskatchewan could do something like that too? Or would the answer be no? Asymmetrical federalism and all? Huh. So, is this going to reopen old separatist debates in Quebec and new ones in the West? Or will it be a great political dud? Let's find out. The Scrum is here. Joining me is our CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief, Joyce Napier. Stephanie Levitz is a reporter with the Toronto Star. And our special guest is the former NDP leader, CTV News political commentator and lawyer, Tom Mulcair. Good morning to everyone. All right, Tom, you've written a lot about this. Um, yeah. What do you make of the political response first on the political side and, and the substance, the legal side? Does Quebec have a, have a good, solid legal argument or not? Well, you can see the federal leaders doing the same thing that they did with Quebec's Bill 21, which openly discriminates against religious minorities. It's just move along, nothing to see here. We don't even want to have a position. Uh, the Canadian Attorney General didn't even intervene in the case to express defense for the Canadian right, Charter of Rights and Freedom. So that's a bit of a shocking turn of events for anybody who's watched the last 30, 40 years since the Charter was enacted. With regard to language rights in Quebec, similar to Manitoba and New Brunswick, you have a right to have your tribe in English in Quebec. But the Quebec government under Mr. Legault has been slowly but sur surely trying to chip away at that. Trying to say, for example, that it's only the Quebec government that will decide whether or not we need bilingual judges. There's a big fight going on on that right now. They're going after parts of the civil code that say certain things can be done right. in English. They're removing those rights. So it's not just a question of Quebec saying, oh, this is our stuff and nobody can ask us any questions. There's a whole different section, section 43, that says specifically if it's language, it has to go for at least a motion in the House of Commons, let there be a debate, and a motion in the Senate. What they're trying to do, the leaders you just referred to, Evan, is to avoid even having to talk about this. They're just hoping to right. say, yeah, magically, all of a sudden, a single province unilaterally can change the Constitution, which, of course, is nonsense right. when you read the two sections, which are 43 and 45. Uh, Steph, there, there, constitutional scholars are having a big debate about this. What about the raw politics of this? What do you make about this sanguine response? Tom made a really good point where he talked about the federal leadership response to Bill 21 when they all tried to duck and cover and I think that really laid the groundwork for allowing them to sort of take a little bit of a step further on this one and say Quebec can do what it likes and Quebec can do what it likes because we're heading into a federal election. It's not going to be tomorrow, it's probably not going to be next month, but certainly within the next year 
we're going to the polls. The path for victory for all the three, you know, three main federal parties, the conservatives, the liberals, the New Democrats, they all need to pick up seats in Quebec. They cannot afford to anger voters in Quebec. And so they're going to take, you know, this sanguine response for now. And we'll see how it shakes out in their respective caucuses. Because in the conservative movement in particular, as you alluded to, Evan, I mean, the folks fanning the flames of Western separation uh, have not let up on that argument. There are some new upstart parties in the mm -hmm. West who, who want to run on exactly that topic. So how much room Aaron O'Toole has to sort of do both things, support the West, support Quebec, that'll be a really tricky mm -hmm. line for him to walk. Yeah, Joyce, love you to weigh in, and you've covered this for a long time. Jagmeet Singh, I asked him, would this apply to Alberta or Saskatchewan? He said, no, Quebec's different, so it may be not. Wow. You know, really interesting responses rolling out on this. What do you make of the, of the political implications? Well, you've got to look at the context and the timing of this, right? So, you know, my first reaction was, hey, yay, in a pandemic, we're going to have a constitutional debate. Mm. I, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm still not over Meech Lake. I'm actually a nerd who remembers exactly the time and where I was when I found out that Meech Lake died. So, you know, and I think there are a lot of Canadians like me. You now, this is really not the time for this, except if you're Francois Legault. So look at it his way. Quebec, for the majority of Quebecers, actually um, support this bill. Uh, they support uh, the uh, Bill 96. Uh, they support the fact that the French language has to be, you know, sort of more protected. Even, um, you know, a constitutional amendment uh, from, from Quebec or changing the Constitution. Maybe Quebec should start by signing it. I don't know. I'm not a constitutional scholar. But what I know is Quebec is fertile ground in an election campaign, notice that none of these political leaders want to weigh in because they don't want to aggravate the electorate there. They don't want to aggravate Francois Legault. So, you know, of course he's going to do this now. Right. It's perfect timing. And actually, you know, if you're Francois Legault, it's a pretty brilliant mm. uh, political move. Okay, Tom, uh, I, I want to get to this other issue on vaccine rollout because uh, Major General Danny Fultan, who led Canada's weekly vaccine briefings, uh, is now sub subject to a sexual misconduct complaint. It's making its way not only now through the National Defense, but it's now at the, uh, the Quebec prosecution. He denies the allegation. It stems from over 30 years ago. The Prime Minister said he knew about this weeks ago. The Defense Minister said he knew about it back in March, but they say n neither of them could interfere because that would constitute essentially uh, um, political interference and they've got to let the investigation go and that's why it wasn't until two Fridays ago that he stepped aside pending this investigation. Is that, I'm just trying to figure out the process, in your view is that the right response that the Prime Minister says I don't need to know the allegations, I can do nothing, I'll just, no politician can make a determination. Well, that's the same type of thing that Katie Telford, Mr. Trudeau's chief of staff, said in Defence Committee in Parliament. Well, yeah, I knew it could have been a case of sexual misconduct with regard to Vance, but I didn't really want to know. That's called willful blindness. Mr. Trudeau knew for weeks that there was this allegation. Of course, Major General Fortin is the most visible member of the Canadian forces, and they leave him on the stage to be yanked off weeks later, admitting that they knew, and they didn't do anything. Look, Mr. Trudeau really loves to virtue signal and to talk about his feminist credentials, frankly. In terms of foreign affairs, we actually did quite well in that regard. But here at home, our armed forces, it's been tragic. Steph, I know yeah. you wanted to weigh in on this. What does this tell you? I'm, I mean, who knew what when, but what does this all tell you about, you know, the culture that, you know, Canadians have been watching in the military for so long? 
Well, it tells us one thing that's pretty important, is that what's happened to John Vance and what's happened in his wake is seeing more and more women finally feeling comfortable to come forward and to talk about things that were really difficult for them perhaps to address at the time because of the culture of the military and really start to act to, to force some change. But the issue then also becomes, if we go back to Jonathan Vance, is the role Jonathan Vance has played over the last few years in, in creating the culture in the military, in promoting people, in advancing their careers. If he was perpetrating a culture where everybody knew that he had you know, relationships that might be on the borderline of inappropriate, and meanwhile he's promoting folks in the military, what's the message he is sending to other leaders in the military? And is it time for every single one of them to have a very hard look in the mirror and take a look back at their past and say, what have I done? Should I be in this role? And how can I fix this culture? Right, General Vance has denied these allegations to other media. Joyce, before we get going, I want to go to the border issue. I know it's something that you're, that people need to talk about. Uh, look, many U.S. states are awash with vaccines. Uh, they're offering them for free to Canadians, but the Public Health Agency of Canada will not classify it as an essential treatment to get a vaccine in a pandemic. And now the U.S. Border Agency also says you can't just cross for the sole purpose about getting a vaccine. You think these two governments could work this out? What's your thought about access to vaccines in the U.S. when, frankly, they got more than they, they can find arms to jab into right now? And, you know, given that most Canadians live along the Canada-U.S. border, it wouldn't be a big stretch for Canadians to be able to cross over. Um, at first, when they, everybody seemed to agree a few, just a few days ago, um, you needed a note from your doctor to say that a second vaccine was essential. Now, nobody will convince anybody in this pandemic that the second vaccine is not essential and that this wouldn't be a procedure that would help Canada's general health. Um, if this is a matter of health, then crossing over and getting a vaccine and coming back with a proof of a second vaccine seems to me um, to be quite elementary. All right, uh, I, I got to leave it there. But one thing, all the provinces are, are on a reopening plan. For many of us, that means salons and uh, barber shops will be open. So I'm going to leave it with Tom Mulcair. If the barber shops open, Tom, just flash us the, the pandemic pony you're rocking here. Do not cut this thing, Tom. Let's see it. Oh, man, that is grand. That's my Covey tail. That is, that, I tell you. Tom, I'm giving you, this is like your 1970s when you were riding a motorcycle. That is the zen Tom Mulcair, man. Okay, we got to leave it. Uh, Steph, I think your ponytail doesn't come close at this point to Tom's. Uh, Steph Levitz, I Tom Mulcair, so. and Joyce Napier. Great to have all of you. Man, the pandemic Bye, ponytail guys. wins for the week. Uh, that's question period. Uh, we will be back here in seven short days. Thanks so much for watching. Hug your loved ones if it's safe. Don't cut your hair. And I'll see you on Power Play tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. Take care.